So in our passage today is Colossians chapter 1, pretty much filling out the rest of chapter 1 where we ended last week. The thing is, is when you're dealing with a book like Colossians, there are so many themes that you almost have to go back into to truly um, explore in a greater way. And what I'm going to do, since you now have the text in front of you, we are going to read together, uh, let's see, it's verses 19 through 22. We'll read them together and you'll understand why. So let's read together. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And yes, there's a... Oh, you can stop. You can stop. You can stop. There is a comma there, yes, but that's where I wanted to start with, because we have a repeated word in verse 20 and 21, and it's the word reconcile. So you have this, uh, you know, I, I touched on it briefly last week, but the theme last week was really more the preeminence of Christ, the eternality of Jesus, that he was there from the beginning and he has authority over all things. But then it talks about reconciliation. Now, as part of this exercise, uh, you'll notice at the bottom of your page, I have some fill in the blank. And uh, so it's, it's not a test. I will give you the answer and you can fill in the blank. Uh, unless you want to try to guess the answer ahead of time, and then we will mock you for your errors later. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, yes, last week you did have a test on the, on the, on the uh, incarnation, and I hope you all passed. But anyway, that's another, another conversation for another eternity. There are five major theological terms that summarize our salvation. The first one, can you guess? If you read it there, sinners stand before God as accused and are declared righteous. Justification. Justification. So fill in the blank. Justification. A sinner stands before God as a slave and is granted freedom by ransom. Redemption. Redemption. To be redeemed. Third, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, and the debt, having been paid, add a comma after the word paid, is forgiven. That's kind of obvious because it's in the statement. Forgiveness. Fourth, the sinner stands before God as an enemy and becomes a friend, also known as peace with God. So what is that word? It's our theme for today, reconciliation. And fifth, the sinner stands before God as a stranger and is made a son or daughter. Adoption. Now, isn't it interesting that in today's lesson for the sermon, you had Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, which you, don't, you should all have memorized by now because he challenged you to do that. Verse 5, to redeem those who are under the law. Oh, wait, there's a redeem word right there. So that we might receive adoption as sons. And here we have adoption in our class. Yes, Pastor Jim and I are in cahoots, so you can hear things more than once. 
Think about these five words. Justification, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and adoption. Each has different shades of meaning, but all have ultimately the same uh, impact with regard to our salvation. As John MacArthur put it, forgiveness, that's your number three there, deals with the fruit of your life, and your fruit is sin. And that needs to be forgiven. Redemption deals with the root. And that is your nature, your sin nature. You are a slave to sin. Therefore, you need to be redeemed from that nature. Then, reconciliation is our condition. We have a condition that needs to be reconciled. We are enemies of God. And that must be reconciled. And then lastly, adoption is now our position. This is where we are positioned now in relation to God. God has adopted us into his family. So think of it. You have fruit and root, condition and position. And the umbrella over all of it is justification, which is our declaration. We are declared righteous by God. Isn't that a nice preamble? And we just got started. So we look at the word reconciliation. And we're looking at it in, in terms of what we see in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses starting with 19 through 21, 22 actually. Reconcile is a verb. Reconciliation is a noun. So you are reconciled is a past tense of the verb reconcile. It's used in relationships that are broken. So you might have two people that were in a relationship, maybe, and now that relationship is separated. And you bring them together to reconcile. That makes sense. You know, you see it all the time. It's the word is not used, but you can also almost see it in the picture of the story of the prodigal son. The relationship is broken by one of the parties, and then it is reconciled in the end. An accountant, and there's some of us in the room who have been accountants. Um, talk about reconciling the books. Now, what does that mean? For anybody who wants to speak to that as an accountant or a business person, what does it mean to reconcile the books? Do you reconcile your checkbook? Do you even write checks anymore? Uh, that's another question. Um, but what do you try to do? To make it balance. Now, <laughs> it's kind of ironic that we have a number of uh, university students here because this reminded me of my freshman year at Grand Canyon as an accounting major. We don't want to tell the year, but it was 1976. So that was a while ago. This is before Lotus 1, 2, 3 or Excel. You had to do all your accounting by hand on a ledger. So you're in these classes and your final exam is to reconcile the books. It's your major project. And you have to present to the, the accounting professor your ledger to show that you've got it all to come out even. Well, because I was a, um, I lived in Hawaii, that's where I went to high school, and mom and dad were still there, so Thanksgiving was not a time where I could go home. So I was one of three people in the whole dorm who didn't go home on Thanksgiving. 
So during Thanksgiving, and yes, we will now all be very, very sad for Steve. <laughs> but I was alone on Thanksgiving, and I walked to the Jack in the Box on 35th Avenue in Bethany Home to get a steak sandwich. That was my Thanksgiving meal. Oh, thank you very much. Now we all feel sad. Now you know why I'm very independent. Anyway. <laughs> but it gave me time during that long weekend to reconcile the books. I had nothing else to do. So I'm sitting there crunching numbers hour after hour after hour. I was so glad because everyone else was panicked you know, later on in the, in the semester because they didn't have the time to get it done because they were out playing on Thanksgiving, but I was working. But when it's done, there's this measure of satisfaction that, oh look, it worked. It's pure, it's clean, it's, there's no problem, there's no enmity between the numbers. So let's flip that into a spiritual picture. You have an almighty, holy God who loves us dearly, but you stink of sin and he cannot abide your presence cannot you cannot have holiness with a little tincture of sin thrown in you just can't do it in the bible the word reconciliation is kataleso and if I were to write it up here Make sure I have it right. Yes. L L E S O. I think there's two S's. Kataleso. That means to reconcile. Very, fairly simple. There are places in the New Testament where this is um, used uh, rather dramatically. So we find in 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Four times. Kataleso is used in that passage. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19. You flip over to Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Again. Same word. And yet, in Colossians, it's not this word. It's a variation of this word. Apo, kaleso. It's just a preposition. But when it's used in the Greek language, it's to bear down on its meaning, to emphasize it almost beyond its general usage. So think of it as, and I, I wrote it here, as really, 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 really reconciled. <laughs> that's in the Greek. No, that's not. But think about it. You have the word reconciliation, and everyone goes, yeah, 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 like, like, putting the books together. We get it. But Paul is trying to say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Jesus is the reconciler. Now, why would he emphasize it here? Remember, the church in Colossae is dealing with a group of, let's call them, uh, pre-Gnostics. 
So this is the early versions of Gnosticism that has come into this part of the world. And they were saying that Jesus is not enough. He is merely one stage on the way to God. He is not God. Therefore, he's not even human. And we're not even sure he's really God. So Paul is saying, you've got to understand here, Jesus is preeminent. He is there before creation. He is, has authority over all creation. And he is really, 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 really reconciling you to himself. That's why it's here. Because it's Christmas, there is a very famous song that we all sing. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconcile. It's right there in the hymn. Oh, guess what? We sing theology on Sunday mornings. You think, see, you think it's just nice and sweet and sentimental and we all think of, you know, puppies and kittens and, and, and gifts. And No, these words are from Scripture. God and sinners reconciled. Wow. To remove enmity with God, to remove the fact that God is actually against our sin and is now a friend is an extraordinary miracle. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Now, this doesn't answer the question, how? How can you go from the wrath of God against sin to the love of God for our salvation? That doesn't make any sense. It's impossible. Well, D.A. Carson is a brilliant writer, and he wrote this in an article from Bibliotheca Sacra. Um, it says, our problem is that in human experience, wrath and love normally abide in mutually exclusive compartments. And I have to stop there. In human experience. In a human life, you can't love and hate something equally. Well, unless you're a Diamondbacks fan or a Suns fan. <laughs> uh, that's, oh, sorry. Uh, just a little deviation there. But think about it. Love drives wrath out, or wrath drives love out. We come closest to bringing them together, perhaps, in our response to a wayward act by one of our children. But normally, we do not think that a wrathful person is loving. And this is where the world stumbles when they start thinking about who God is and what salvation is. They're saying, well, God is love. <clears throat> so he, <clears throat> he would never punish people. But this is not the way it is with God. God's wrath is not an implacable blind rage. However emotional it may be, it is entirely reasonable <clears throat> it is an entirely reasonable and willed response to offenses against his holiness. At the same time, his love wells up amidst his perfections and is not generated by the loveliness of the loved. I mean, if we were perfectly lovely, how could anyone hate us? We're so perfect and beautiful and Nice all the time. But thus there is nothing intrinsically impossible about wrath and love being directed toward the same individual or people at the same time. 
God in His perfections must be wrathful against His rebel image bearers because they have offended Him with their sin. God in His perfections must be loving toward His rebel image bearers for He is that kind of God. So when we wrestle with this, we see that they are both equally possible. The fruit, our sin, the root, our sin nature. The condition that we are in is enmity with God and our position is separation from God. And yet in salvation, the fruit, root, condition, position, all becomes declared righteous. And how is this done? Well, it's right there in the verse 22. He has reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. And you look up in verse 20, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now, I've alluded to this a couple times in the past, but I remember being in one of our theology classes in college, and our professor, Dr. Martin. You mean you stopped majoring in accounting? I did. I became a Bible major. Yes. Anyway, let's just put it this way. When I had a night class for three hours once a week in economics, where the professor read the textbook to us <laughs> for three hours, but we had to have it read before we went, that made me change my major because I suddenly hated business. Anyway, that's another story. Um, where was I? Oh yes, Dr. Martin. Do you need to be reconciled to your professor? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Martin once very boldly claimed in the middle of theology class that the blood of Christ cannot save you. And there was this, well that's heresy. And of course one gentleman stood up in the class all full of vim and vigor and said, but the hymn says nothing but the blood of Jesus. <laughs> Later on, Dr. Martin and I were talking because I was his teacher's aide and he just started shaking his head. He goes, the guy quoted a hymn. <laughs> like it was scripture. Oh. Well, he's right. Because if Jesus could just bleed. He would have cut his finger and said, that was good enough. You know, he was already beat up. He had a crown of thorns stuck on his head. The blood was coming down into his eyes. Isn't that good enough? No, the blood is a symbol of the sacrifice. The atonement happens, as it says in verse 22, by his death. And as many of the teachers are pointing out, as I was reading about this, they said, realize Jesus did not bleed to death. When he was pierced in the side, blood and water came out. He didn't bleed to death. He died volitionally. He's up on the cross and he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He said, now it's time. I choose to become the atonement at this moment. Not because I've exsanguinated. Think about that for a second. There's science in the theology. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. Speaking of reconciliation, 
Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And that word hostility is found in Colossians 1, 21. I was reading over in Ephesians 2, and you says, you who were once alienated, oh, that sounds familiar, and hostile in mind, oh, that sounds familiar. Paul repeats himself because we forget that he said it before. So we hear it over and over and over again. But why does he do this? Second half of verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If you think about it again, theologically, this reconciliation, meaning the parties are no longer able to come together. They are separated. We tend to think that is the uh, that we are asking for God's forgiveness. No, it starts with God. God reaches out to us. He gave us His Son on the cross in His death so that we can be reconciled. Not because we begged enough. Not because we did all the right things. So never forget that salvation begins with God. It doesn't begin with us. Now, if you want to go look in the, uh, the website, theinneraltar.com, and find the lectures that we did on uh, propitiation, Romans chapter 3, 25, this is a similar concept, and I don't, we could spend another hour just on propitiation. But that's what this is. It is a way to create atonement. Now, you think I'm done with a theological excursus. No. There's one more issue that came up last week in this passage. And I thought about it later, and I realized I didn't address it very well with you. And that was the concept of universalism, the idea that all will be saved. Because that's buried in verse 20. And people have used this verse as a way to say that God will reconcile all things to himself. Meaning, everybody will be saved. I mean, it says right there, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. Huh. Wow. So I casually passed over it last week. I alluded to it primarily because our topic was the preeminence of Christ and the authority over all creation. And I said, well, you know, you, you know that doesn't what this means. And I thought later, why should I assume you all know what that means? Never assume biblical knowledge in any conversation. We are no longer in a society of people who have either grown up in church who or even understand the lingo. There are some people that Noah is the center for the Chicago Bulls. You know, Joaquin Noah. I mean, that's that his name. And someone says, oh, is that the boat guy? 
yeah, yeah, that, that, that's the boat guy. But we can't assume these things. So don't assume when in a conversation that others may understand what you're talking about. About 12 years ago, there was an author named Rob Bell who wrote a book called Love Wins. And this book hit the New York Times bestseller list. It went everywhere. And I mean, this guy was a pastor of a church in uh, Michigan. He had left his church, wrote this book. He later became an Oprah sage and has, you know, he's had a whole new career basically saying love conquers all and that there's no such thing as hell and that eventually everyone will be saved. And you say, oh, he wouldn't have said that. I mean, he was an evangelical pastor. Well, this is what he wrote. Hell is not about someday or somewhere else. But it's about the various hells on earth that people experience in this life. Like genocide, rape, unjust socioeconomic structures, etc. That's hell. In other words, we're experiencing it this moment. Well, any time listening to me is, well, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> On page 107 of this book, quote, given enough time, everyone will turn to God and find themselves in the joy and peace of God's presence. The love of God will melt every hard heart, and even the most depraved sinners will eventually give up their resistance and turn to God. Boy, that sounds really good, doesn't it? Mm. I mean, that means I can go and have a blast this week and not worry about it. Because eventually, I'll go, yeah, you're right. You know, time to let me in. G. Vernon McGee, our lovely old radio preacher, he says, don't listen to the deception. Don't think you can depend on God being nice and sweet and pleasant like a little old lady. Which is kind of funny because he was a little old man. But <laughs> we have this, we try to reposition God in our own image, in our own understanding. And then we say, see, this is how God would do it. I know best. If you'd like to read a really good book on the idea of hell, read this one by Francis Chan. This was written in response to Rob Bell in 2011, and it's called Erasing Hell. Mm. What makes this particular volume um, accessible, you might think, I don't want to read a book on hell, my goodness sake. Um, look, your friends aren't reading it, but your friends believe that God is not going to punish anybody. So maybe you need to start thinking about the issue. What made this book really jump out at me is in the first chapter, Francis Chan said, I don't like preaching on hell. I don't like writing this book on hell. I don't like teaching about it because it confronts where my grandmother is right now. Oh, okay. Now I understand. So here's a man saying, look, I get it. The human reaction to the idea of punishment for sin and separation from God is very uncomfortable. He has a wonderful chapter title, which I think is wonderful here. It said, um, has hell changed or have we? Oh, wow. And he goes through the history of the topic and the doctrine and how some modern people have um, refashioned it. But when it comes to the idea of salvation or universal salvation, look again at verse 20 of Colossians 1 and says, Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. So that means cockroaches are going to be reconciled. I'm not sure I like that idea. But isn't that what it's saying? 
All things. As Norm Geisler put it, he's not speak, Paul is not speaking of universal salvation, but of universal sovereignty. That's a different topic. And if he were talking about universal salvation, Paul would be writing about it all the time. And in the rest of all of Paul's letters, the rest of the New Testament, it talks about God's sovereignty in all things. And if you were to say, well, you know, Paul was Paul, you know, and he made up Christianity, so, I mean, he, he invented the whole thing, then what do you deal with Jesus in Matthew 25? Where he said in verse 41 to unbelievers, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, I guess Jesus was lying. Is that what you're saying? And Jesus follows it up in verse 46 of chapter 25. They will go away into eternal punishment. If Jesus is teaching this, then maybe we better pay attention to it. If you want to discount Paul, you shouldn't. But if you want to do that, you then have to deal with the rest of the New Testament too. John MacArthur put it this way. He said, it's clear that by all things, Paul means all things for whom reconciliation is possible. And reconciliation, becoming a friend with God, only comes through repentance and an understanding of your sinfulness and therefore welcoming the atonement and the reconciliation with Christ. You see why this is important to talk about? It's, we, we gloss over these theological issues thinking, ah, you know, this is all heady stuff and has no impact. People live like this. Uh, another book I brought, I'm just going to quote from it. Uh, it's Bruce Milne's book called Know the Truth. Uh, wonderful book of theology. He writes, we take sin too lightly and are quick to find mitigating circumstances to excuse it. God, however, cannot. Sin resists his lordship in the universe, contradicts his loving purposes, and strikes at his glory. Just how seriously God views sin can be seen in the terrors of Calvary. If universalism, that all is going to be sin, what was the point of the sacrifice on the cross? It's immaterial. It's unnecessary because God's love would overwhelm us anyway. Why would all the rest of this hullabaloo be necessary? It would make no sense. Yeah. It's interesting because that's the exact question that is in the, the, the shack. She says, well, then it, he says, well, if, if these people are, are going to be saved, then what was the use of the cross? He goes, well, that's important. We'll get to that. And they never get to it. In the whole because book. the author is a universalist. Yeah. The author of The Shack, the best-selling novel that you've all seen or whatever, looked around, even maybe even watched the movie. The author came out with a book later about 10 lies we say about God. And in that, he expresses his universalism for all to see. Yeah. I had a question. Um, when it says, reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or, in, or whether on earth or in heaven, to what in heaven is he reconciling with? You could speak, depending on how you want to look at that, as angels, you know, devil, these are created beings. So that, that's the idea that the devil's going to be reconciled to. That would be something that universalists would I would say that there's no one who cannot or nothing created ever. That's what they're trying to say. I remember a conversation many years ago. Oh, man, it was, let's just call it more of an argument. 
Um, but this fellow was just all set on the fact that Hitler was going to be in heaven with me. And so was Pol Pot and Idi Amin and all these horrible men of history. And I said, how can you, how can you come up with this? And he goes, because God is love. God will, God's love is more powerful than anyone's sin. And I said, yes, but... And he just would not listen. Of course, you know, anytime you're dealing with that, well, there was a third party who was overhearing some of it. And he came into it, the conversation briefly. He just kind of shook his head and then spun on his heel and walked away. Uh, well, that was interesting. So I kind of wrapped it up with this guy because there was no way I was going to change his mind. And I went, followed that third fellow. And I went over and I said, what? Why did you even come in and then you didn't really engage and then you just walked away. And he goes, when you are confronted with the spirit of error, it is not up to you to fix it. And I realized all I can do is pray for the man's awareness. I've never forgotten that. You can have the conversation. There's nothing wrong with the conversation. But when it's so entrenched, because they are trying to come up with a way to justify their own sin. Yeah. I think what he was asking, what does it really mean uh, on earth or in heaven? Uh-huh. As not, not in relation to the hell aspect, and punishment aspect. I'm not sure I know how to answer that question. <laughs> because if you... Ask Tom. Tom <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was just saying because we do know of other heavenly beings, right? But as far as Paul talks about, as far as I'm aware, we won't. We've directly offended God, but because Christ is God and He's forgiven us, does that mean then we're just reconciling with Him? And why would it just say things in heaven? You're making a good, a good fine point I have to defer saying I really can't answer the question here because I haven't looked into it so it's a fair question when you're dealing with the sovereignty with God's sovereignty Jesus is sovereign over all that's what Paul's trying to say ultimately and it may be that he's using language saying on heaven and earth I mean everything everywhere the entire universe beyond even what you can see. Even into the spiritual realm, which you cannot see. And he's trying to say, all of it. He is Lord over all, no matter what it is. We want to get down into the details of what is he trying to reconcile in heaven. I can't answer that. It's a fair question. Thank you for thinking of it. Yes. Yeah, I think what you're saying is similar to what Paul says in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, everything, whether heaven, under earth, or even under the earth, is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, whether they're there, what their state they're going to have yep. to confess that truth. Yes, and Philippians is also used by universalists because of that yep. broad statement. So you have, in fact, in my studies, it's this Colossians passage and the Philippians passage that are forever quoted by the universalist saying, see, the problem is if you pull it out and only look at that, you're missing the rest. Yeah. Uh, just uh, prior to this in verse 16, he, he says, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Okay, so Paul's graded, you know, I'm saying this, now here's I'm saying this. You know, to me, it's, it's his argument, and it's kind of self-explanation, explanatory. You know, the perfect heavens and earth in yep. the beginning. And then the fall of man, which dragged the whole of creation mm -hmm. down with him. Mm -hmm. At one point in the future, when Christ reigns supreme, it's going to revert back to everything will be... Good point, Carl. In fact, uh, one of the passages I was studying, writers I was studying, they went on a very long discursus about the new heaven and the new earth at the end of time. 
and brought it all back to Colossians. It'd be, it would be an interesting study to look closer to the word reconcile. Yeah. Because just when we think about reconcile, uh, reconciliation, is that always about showing mercy? Or is it also showing justice? Mm, bingo. That's, it's both. It's yeah. the wrath and the love yeah, together. Like right. You so, can't have one without the other. Right. So, so to bring about reconciliation is as much an act of justice as mercy. That helps to. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So you can see how important this is to think about these things. So let's carry on with the, the, uh, the text. So in order to present you, second half of verse 22 present you holy and blameless and above reports before him. Wayne Barber put it this way. He said, it's a picture of the Christian life. You are a boat in the water. And the water is the world. And that's a good thing. You're in the world. But if the water's in the boat, that's not such a good thing. It's a disaster. So we can be in the world and not of it, be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then the beginning of verse 23, after the comma, is a lovely little word, if. Oh, doggone it. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. As one, one writer put it, we are not saved by continuing in the faith, but we continue in the faith and thus prove we are saved. And so I went on this little discursus imagining that I decide to be an ex-evangelical, which you see a lot of these very famous preacher teachers and whatnot coming out and declaring, I'm no longer a Christian. I give it all up. Just see it. I mean, it's like a plague. And unfortunately, because of social media, it becomes widely disseminated and becomes headline news. But I wrote this. You know, I ought to quit being a Christian. It's too hard. I mean, I don't want to pay the price. It tells me who I can't have sex with. It tells me homosexuality is sinful. In fact, Christianity has an obsession with right behavior. And let me tell you this, no one can tell me what to do. Sound like some of your friends? There is a danger in letting that creep come in where you finally come to that point and go, you know, this is just such a bunch of hooey and you just walk away and you say but once saved always saved so does that mean that revival I went to and I gave my life to Jesus and I went to all the Bible studies and I listened to Steve Lobby and I'm saved now <laughs> yeah if you walk away from it you have to go back to the beginning and ask were you truly truly changed it strikes me though, you listen to most of the pastors, ex-pastors, how often they talk as if they're more compassionate than God. Right, right. I'm more compassionate now. Uh, God is love, you know, and I'm following that. And it's this reimagining or repositioning our own understanding so that it's more acceptable. It's easier. It's less judgy. And as you said, reconciliation is justice and love together. You can't have one without the other. There's an old saying, if your faith fizzles before you finish, it's because you were faulty at the beginning. If you look at your friend you had a beginning about the books, when you're reconciling books, you have debt and you have... Plus, right? right? Plus and negative, and the debt's going to have to be paid. Yep. At some point, the debt has to be paid. <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon says, Don't think that in the moment you believe in Christ, the conflict is over, or you will be bitterly disappointed. <laughs> mm. So this is... I'm going to show up. 
Yes, I do bring non-theological works to the room, but this is a novel called Arena by Karen Hancock. I had the privilege of editing it over 20 years ago. And in this allegory, you have a journey of a woman in this world trying to get back to her world. And the way to get through the world is to get through a gate. She gets through the gate, and you're in the middle of the book. The metaphor is that when you get through the gate, you have become a Christian. And then the war began. The journey to get there was overwhelming. I mean, you just thought she was going to perish at every turn. And you're, you're kind of going, wait, there's an awful lot of this story left. Well, yeah, as Spurgeon says, don't think for a moment that when you believe in Christ, that the conflict is over. It is then that the battle renews itself and every inch of the road swarms with enemies. Between here and heaven you will always have to fight more or less and frequently the severest struggle will be at a time when you are least prepared for it. There is but a short space between one battle and another in this world. It's a series of skirmishes even when it does not assume the form of a pitched battle. The one that would win heaven must fight for it. The one that would take the new Jerusalem must scale its walls. Verse 24, And I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that is given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Verses 24 and 25 are used very often in lecturing to pastoral students, those who are looking to be ministers in the church, because this is what Paul is basically trying to say. This is what I'm doing. I could go into that, but I want to say... In a sense, aren't we all ministers in the place where we live and are planted? In some form or fashion, we should be trying to make, the end of verse 25, make the word of God fully known to those with whom we come in contact. There are those who think that, well, the, you know, that's all up to the pastor. That's his job. Whew. So it, I don't have to do any of that. There are certain things that a pastor does that the rest of us do not do. And there's probably hundreds of things that our pastoral staff does that we have no idea what they're doing. And yet we are called to be ministers to those with whom we have been placed in contact with. To love them, to care for them, to present truth to them. Yes? It's uh, interesting because as we believe, really reflects every day of our decisions. Yes. The word. And it affects our behavior every moment. Yep. I come across uh, Christians who are light uh, in their theology, in their scripture, and uh, they'll talk to me about a certain circumstance. And I'll think to myself, well, I made a decision way back to do such and such. Therefore, I would never get involved, or I would have better habits because I believe this, and I know that from the word. Yep. Yeah, John MacArthur says there are four thieves that take away our understanding of how to minister. It's circumstances, people, possessions, and worry. And he's so right. You think about it. We blame our circumstances. Ah, you know, if this hadn't happened, I would have been a better Christian. 
Maybe you're a better Christian because of what happened. Um, people, oh, it's not my fault. It's Tom's fault. You know, Tom did it. And, you know, he said it, and, well, that blew up the whole thing. It's not my fault. Or possessions, you're more concerned about what you own or don't own. Or just the idea of worry. You game out the worst case scenarios and it ends up taking away your focus from the word itself. And of course, there's ways of countering that and that would be a whole other class. But in verse 26, it says, to make, starting in verse 25, with a comma at the end, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Oh, we love a good mystery. You know, the whodunits. And when you think about the mysteries of God, uh, I have entire books that talk about the, the theology of the mysteries of Scripture and theology and understanding what's going on. And you just wish there was a Sherlock Holmes or a Nero Wolfe or a Hercule Poirot who could tell us how and what happened. Who did it? We don't have one of those. Oh, wait, we do. It's Jesus Christ. He's revealed this mystery. And this is what Paul's trying to say. This ineffable, unexplainable. I wrote here, the mystery of God's love for us. Let's explain that in ten words or less. Oh, uh, that's a little hard. How about the mystery of salvation? How about the mystery of the incarnation? How God could become a baby. Who couldn't feed himself. You know, I, I, I thought he created the world. It doesn't make a lot of sense. How, am I, how come he doesn't go, I'm wanting chocolate right now. <laughs> no. Or the mystery of sanctification. How you become more like him over time. And it's revealed at the end of verse 27. This mystery is Christ in you. The hope of glory. One old evangelist used to take this idea and he would write or he would present the word Christian and he would have the letters up and he would take the A out and put it at the beginning. A Christ in. And say that's what we're looking for. Christ in you. The hope of glory. So let's sing a song called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Let's sing it together as our benediction. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconcile. Nations arise, join the triumph of the skies with angelic hosts proclaim Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King. And before I pray, I will read. Verse 4, which we never sing. Now display thy saving power. Ruined nature, now restore. Now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together to explore the idea of reconciliation, the idea that you really do love us 
despite us. That you have provided a way for us to become in Christ justified before you as we stand before you at the end of time. What better time of the year to explore this beautiful passage and this beautiful idea. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.